Yesterday, um, my wife and I celebrated our, I think it's 28 now, 28th wedding anniversary. And um, um, we went out to Koolina, Kapule, and, and you know, when, when you go back to some place that you kind of grew up around, sometimes you go back and it's changed a lot. You don't even recognize it. And uh, that's kind of how it is out there. Um, we were out in the Koolina area where it's like, this used to be all sugar cane. I remember as a kid, um, one time we went, one of my friends lived in that area and he told, told us about this really cool beach we could go to. And so we went through all this sugar cane and then came out to Paradise Cove. And, and it, was, it was really nice. And remember all those days. And sometimes, you know, I've had occasion to go back to Eva Beach. And, and you know, it, it, again, it can look, it looks familiar. It looks like, you know, a lot of what was the same. But I know that it's, it's, it's different in so many ways. And, and, you know, we, we sometimes when we think about going back somewhere or, or we just end up back in a place that we haven't been for a while that at one time was home or special to us, um, you know, sometimes you have kind of mixed emotions. But I always kind of wonder what happens if you made decisions in your life that said you could never, ever go back. Talk a little bit about that today. Um, you know, I'm basing these four sermons on the, on the Little Mermaid story, the real Little Mermaid story, not the Disney version of the story. And, um, um, you know, one of the things is uh, that I didn't understand when my kids were growing up and we were watching all these movies together is I didn't really understand this until later, and I guess I should have understood it, but for some reason I wasn't taking um, Disney movies seriously enough. Now I do, and I have some serious issues with some of these movies. Um, you know, these Disney princesses, they, they bug me um, for different reasons. Um, and, uh, you know, three in particular. There's, uh, you know, The Little Mermaid, you know, and then there's the Jasmine, um, um, and then there's Belle. And, in all of these movies, the father is either like kind of goofy and weird, or he's kind of clueless and old, or he's overbearing and he doesn't understand and he's overly strict. And the common thread in all those stories is that the three princesses want to get away. They want to get out of this. You know, I, I missed the auditions this week, so uh, maybe I'll do my song for you later on this month. But, you know, I, you know, the song that I'm sure the people who are taking the auditions probably heard way too much is, you know, part of this world or something like that. A song, you know, that, you know, part of that world. She, you know, Little Mermaid's looking and thinking. She wants to be part of a different world than the world that she's in that her father created for her, and that he made good and beautiful, as we talked about last week. And so all of the um, you know, Disney princesses, they all have that in common. They have a, in a lot of times, they have a great life, but there's always something better. And the thing holding them back is this incompetent, 
or un, you know, like inflexible father. That's it. Very common. Reinforced again and again and again, because you know kids don't watch movies once. They watch them hundreds of times. But there's a difference. And the difference isn't brought out in the movies, but it's brought out in the story of The Little Mermaid. Because in the movies, you can't really do this because it would kind of mess it up, especially if it's a kid's movie. But in the story of The Little Mermaid, Hans Christian Andersen, The Little Mermaid knows that if she leaves, she can never come back. That if she leaves this wonderful world that the Father created for her, and she goes and she wants to permanently be on land, she wants to have, be able to walk, you know, have legs and all of that stuff, if that happens, she can never come back. She doesn't just think that's a better world. She thinks that world is so much better, she wants to cut all ties with the world that her father created for her. Let it all go. I find that interesting. I find that interesting because I don't know that Hans Christian Andersen intended this, but he gave a very clear picture of what we have done as human beings. That God created a world and created good. And he created us to be in that world and to benefit from that world. But we decided, as we talked a little bit about last week, we wanted something more. We wanted something different. And the price wasn't that we could go to this other world and kind of jump back and forth. If we leave, we can never go back. It's that much better. You know, and that's, it's kind of hard to explain that because we don't get a lot of those situations in our lives. We don't get to, you know, see those choices where we can never go back. Like I said, you know, I can go to Eva Beach anytime. You drive over there. It's not a never go back situation. But imagine that. Imagine those of you who kind of grew up in Hawaii your whole life. Imagine if you had that decision at some point where you, you were going to be able to move away. But the catch was you would never come back. You know, the, you know, I kind of grew up in the you know, airplane age, so it's a little different. But, but before, when it was only ships coming here, sometimes that was true. If you left, you were never coming back. I think it would make the decision a little harder. You see, because the Little Mermaid's not just rejecting the Father's world. She's wanting to cut her relationships with her father. She's rejecting the father. Not amending it, not changing it, rejecting it. And we need to understand that that's what happens when we, when we want to do something different. We might think more 
than what God has. That we're not just breaking his law, we're not just disobeying his commandment, we're not just rejecting his stuff, we are rejecting him personally. And our world has been racing away from God for thousands of years at least. At least that's what we have in, you know, in the, when Paul writes in uh, Romans, he's noticing you know, 2,000 years ago that that's what happened. As far back as he can see human civilization, he's saying human civilization has been racing away from God. Not walking, not sauntering, racing away. And what's made it more difficult in our world today is that God has been so redefined. And you know when I say that, immediately people go like, yeah, all those people out there have redefined who God is, and now you know, they, you know, they believe in God, but not you know, the real God. Yeah, I'm talking about them, but I'm also talking about us. Talking about us. Again, those of you who come Wednesday nights or you're in Eric's Sunday school class or you come to the Bible study we have at our house on Sunday evenings, those of you who have been coming, you've been hearing, you've heard the statistic. And the statistic says that something like 90% of Christians who believe that they are practicing Christians. That means they, they, they attend, they participate, you know, probably at least a couple times a month in a church. That those Christians believe that God is an undemanding God who is there to help them when they're in need. If the world gets God wrong, okay. You know, they don't believe in God or they don't believe in the Bible. They've never really experienced new life in Christ. But when we in the church get it wrong, uh, what's going on? I don't know how you can read the Bible and study the Bible and see an undemanding God, a God who has no expectations on you except live your best life and, and be okay. And if you get in some trouble, give me a call and I'll help you out. We've been racing away to the point that even people who call themselves followers of Christ, who say they believe in God's word, can only filter out of that an undemanding God who's only there when you're in trouble. Now, maybe you're having a Lord's Supper moment now. Last Supper. What am I talking about? I'm talking about when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. All the other disciples say, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? I say 90%. There's a good chance if 90%, maybe we're the only church in the entire United States where 100% of us don't believe that. We believe something else about who God is. We believe that he's holy and he has expectations and standards and he he has direction and and he's not just there to bail us out of trouble. And sometimes he gets us in the most trouble because trouble 
is where we need to be if we're going to help people. Maybe we're the one church that doesn't believe it, doesn't believe in this undemanding God. Maybe not. So you might be thinking, is this me? Am I one of those guys? Am I one of those people that believe this about God? Well, I can't prove to you or help you know that for sure, but I can ask you a couple things. When you pray, when you pray, what do you pray most for? If your prayers are mostly to help get you out of trouble or help get your friends out of trouble because they're sick or they're having relationship problems or they're having um, you know, finances, things like that, if that's most of your prayers, you could be. You could be somebody who, who talks to God maybe for, for 10 minutes and nine minutes of it is, I need help, I need help, I need help, I need help. That's a possibility. I don't think that's the, the, the one thing, the litmus test, that if you do that, then you, then you can't possibly believe and have a fuller understanding of God. But I think it's something we think about. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, what else would we pray for if we're not praying for all the things we need? Good question. What else would we pray for? Oh, we might pray for stuff like, God, uh, equip me, use me, so that I might advance your kingdom in this world. We might pray, God, teach me something today that makes me so uncomfortable, something that I don't even know is there, that I have decided is so important that I can't let go of it. God, take me to these hard places in my life and get rid of them so that I can be more like you. Make me uncomfortable for the cause of Christ. Take me to the hard places. Take me to the most difficult people. Please, God, use me. A lot we could pray for. But if we have this idea that God is an undemanding God, you know what? we can run away as far as we want. Because we know, I can keep running, God's never gonna call me back. And should I run and fall down, I'll just say, hey God, I need your help. And then he's gonna help me, and I'm gonna keep running. The world is racing away from God. Too many people in the church are racing away from God. But what makes it complicated is they think they are actually running toward him. But they're running toward the wrong understanding of who God is. At best, we think he's this powerful being with you know, kind of general expectations, but, but we get to make up the details. Oh, and there's other people in the world 
hopefully not in the church, but they reject the idea of God altogether. In fact, as I've said before, they think one of the things that's holding back humanity is this um, superstitious belief in gods and God. And if we're ever going to move forward as a society, we've got to let those things go. Racing away. Racing away. And the more society and culture races away from a true understanding of who God is, the more the church does it, the more difficult it is to hold to faith in the true understanding of who God is. We have two things that I think are great dangers to the, to the church today in different ways that are in the culture. And one of them is, is atheism. And of course, that's not just the belief that there is no God, but it's also the belief that there should be no God. You know, there's a lot of people that are agnostic, which means, you know, they haven't really made up their mind, they haven't really seen evidence of God, but then they don't want to rule it out. And there's a lot of atheists who just like, yeah, you believe what you want to believe, I choose not to believe in God. But there are other atheists that say, you shouldn't believe in God at all. The second one is kind of on the other side. It's a belief in God, but it's, it's what's called an easy believism. Kind of a convenience. Believe in what I want to believe, what I think is helpful to me, and then let the rest go. One thing we need to understand is that as long as humanity and as long as your society is largely fallen or outside of Christ, as long as that's the case, true Christianity will always be counter-cultural. True Christianity will never sit comfortably in a culture that's dominated by people who do not believe in God, not in the God that we see in the Bible. And we fooled ourselves in the United States. We fooled ourselves for I don't know how long, maybe a century, maybe more, because we do have freedoms. And we seem to think we had an American culture, I mean, a Christian culture, a Christian society. Nothing could be further from the truth. Because as far as I know, from what I could understand, Christianity has never been, I mean, the, the dominant religion in America. Oh, people consider themselves Christians. But it's never been the dominant, true Christianity. True Christianity is always countercultural. It always goes against what culture is, is going toward. Because it has to. It's one of the ways that we are salt and light in the world is that we keep saying there is another way. Keep moving that way. We're going to read another part of the creation story from Genesis. And here the creation story taught the ancient Israelites that in this good world that God made, humanity made a choice 
and the choice was to leave it, to go away. And the question we want to answer today is why? You know, when you look at the Little Mermaid story, you, there's a, in the Hans Christian Andersen version of this story, the original, the Little Mermaid wants to leave for two reasons. One, you see in the Disney version, it's that prince, and she wants to be with the prince. But the second one is that in the world that Hans Christian Andersen created, little mer uh, mermaids were only going to live for 300 years. They had a long life. But human beings had immortal souls. And she wanted to be immortal. So she wanted to be with the prince. She wanted to be immortal. And she was willing to give up everything to get what she wanted. So we know why. But then we ask the question, why would humanity leave? Why would they leave God? If God created you know, everything and he created it good and he created humanity and he calls humanity very good, why would the very good want to leave the good? And that's the story that we look at today in Genesis because I think that's the point. And so we go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Okay, so we always want to blame the serpent, but you know, he's got some blame. But the serpent is just simply tapping in to feelings and thoughts that are already in Eve. He says, did he really say that? Did he really say that? What is he, what is he doing? What is he kind of unlocking that's already in her? He's unlocking this thing that's really in all of us. We don't like to be told what to do. We don't like to be told what to do. You know, I had a friend that, um, you know, in his house, it was the same as my house. The rule was, you know, if, if you stay in the house, you go to church. My friend loved to go to church. My friend was a Christian. My friend, you know, without any prompting, would go to church. But as soon as the rule was made, he didn't want to go anymore. And I remember talking to him about it. I said, I said does that rule really matter? You were already doing it. You were already doing it. And he's like, yeah, but I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I don't want them to make me go. But they're not making you go. You are already going. You know, I tried to, you know, I tried to, like, ask him, like, what if you had your, you had your favorite food someone was serving to you, and you could choose to eat your favorite food? And, of course, you would because it's your favorite food. But right before you're about to eat, someone says, you need to eat that. What are you going to do? I know what I would do. 
free favorite food. It's only one choice. You eat it. But he said, nope, I wouldn't eat it because they told me to. That's how a lot of us are. We don't like to be told what to do. Oh, we can be told certain things, but we don't like to be told, especially if it's something that either we don't want to do or something that we might disagree with, but we don't like to be told what to do. And if we do it, it's kind of like this exchange, like, oh, we'll do it if maybe if we get something worth it. Or we'll do it if I don't have a choice and you're making me. But really, it's not something that, that we like. I mean, some of you are maybe blessed with having the, the compliant child, you know? Um, the one who just loved to do whatever mom and dad said. But the more typical child, eh, not so much. Especially when they become teenagers, even less so. Because it's part of us, we don't like to be told what to do. Even if it's helpful, even if it's there to protect us. So why do we leave? Because we don't like to be told anything, even if it's good. In verse 2 it says, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Why, why do we want to leave? Why do we want to leave? Why do we want to go against God? I think the second reason is because we believe what we see more than what we cannot see. We believe what we see more than what we cannot see. A lot of the things that God promises us, whether it's in this world or the next, we can't see them. And so we believe what we can see. If I were to tell you that, you know, God is doing a, a great work at Wildlife Baptist Church, right? If I just say that. And then I said, you know, there's, you know, people are growing in the Lord, you know, they're... Um, you know, there's, you know, there's fruit of the Spirit. There's a, there's a kinder, you know, more loving, you know, humility here. People just hungering after God's Word. You would go, okay, that's nice. But if instead of saying that, I said this. God's really working at Wiley Baptist Church. Last year, we baptized 75 people. We have to start a second service soon. We're, we're expanding our, our ministries. You know, we, you know, I'm tempted to tell people, you need to stop giving money because we have so much money coming in. You would go, wow, praise God. Awesome. Why? Because you can't see a lot of the things I said in the first. But you can see everything I said in the second. And we value more highly things we can see rather than things we cannot see. God is provided. He's promised. 
but they can't see it. What can she see? Well, she can see that tree, the one that she wasn't supposed to touch, the one she wasn't supposed to eat. Well, this gets us in a lot of trouble. And we'd like to say this is the folly of youth, but it's not. It gets us all. You know, we're, we're much more interested in what we can see. And a lot of times that translates in, we're much more interested in what's happening now than what's happening five days from now, five years from now, 30 years from now. When I was working out of school, they were having financial problems, and I don't know if they actually thought like this, and, they, and they, this was part of the rationale, or they just happened upon this great solution, but to make our budget, they didn't want to fire anybody, they didn't want to lay anybody off, so to make budget, they said, what we're gonna do is we're going to, um, we're not going to pay into your annuity this year. Why was that a great solution? Well, it was a great solution because a lot of the older people, you know, they're on, you know, near the time of retirement. They've put in for all these years. It's already building. Yeah, they're going to hurt a little bit. But a lot of the younger people, they're like, okay, that money wasn't going into my bank account. That's 40 years from now. What's the big deal? Uh, we'll take a hit for a year. When in reality, who lost the most money? The guys who were in their 20s who were not going to get that money that year that was going to build interest for the next 30, 40 years. They didn't just lose a little bit of money. They lost a lot of money. But of course, they weren't thinking about it. Because what were they thinking about? They were thinking about the same thing I was thinking about when I was in my 20s. Right now. What do I need now? Ah. Retirement's for old people. I'm young. Right? So we think. Because again, it's human nature. It's human nature to care about more now than a long time from now. What we can see versus what we can't see. And so if what we're experiencing right now is good, but not good enough, and even if there's a promise that it'll get better, it's not better now. Well, the third thing that we see here is in verse 5. It says, Satan says, I mean, the serpent says, you'll not surely die, but then he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Simple. There's something inside of us that wants to be like God. We want to have his power, his authority. We want to, to have his knowledge. We want to be like him. And in a sense, that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing because part of being a Christian is that we become more and more like Christ. And who is Christ? He's the son of God. It's not a bad thing. But it's a bad thing because of why she wanted it. And it kind of connects to this, the first one. Why do I want to be God? 
Because I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I want to be independent. I want to be able to, to call the shots. I want to be able to take care of myself. There are a lot of like things in on our American culture, principles that are very Christian, very much so. When I think about America as a Christian society, a Christian nation, I think about those things that were kind of in our DNA, it's in our, you know, as, as a society. You know, the, it comes out in things like, you know, the most giving nature, nation to charity is, is almost always, by far, the United States. There's this, you know, this, this feeling of, of giving and things like that, but there's also things that are, that are not Christian. And see, the, the, one of the things that's a mark of American society, it goes all the way back to its beginning, also in our DNA, it's a term somebody called rugged individualism. That our nation was, was built partly on this rugged individualism. Because what would happen is these people would come and they would be there, you know, landing on the East Coast, and then they would be like, all right, let's go. And they'd just start moving west. They'd start moving west, not knowing what was out there, no infrastructure, nothing out there, just heading west. And it was great. It kind of built our nation. But there was this desire to, to, to you know, be my own man or be my own woman and, and control my own fate. It's rugged individualism. It's really not what the Bible teaches us about who we're supposed to be. But we see there in the very heart of Eve, she wants to be like God. She doesn't want to be told what to do anymore. And so she's tempted. She wants to leave. Because once she has this knowledge, she's never going to be able to go back. She can't undo it. It's done. She leaves. You see, that's, again, it's how we are. We, we want to do everything on our own. We don't want to surrender. We... we Maybe try sometimes. You know, we'll, you know, some people kind of experiment with Christianity. Oh, I'll try. I'll look in, you know, I'll look in the window. I'll hang out with the people a little bit. You know, try it. And maybe we start to see like, wow, there's more grace here, and I like that. There's more forgiveness here, and I like that. There's more love here, and I like that. There's more beauty here, and I like that. And then something happens. And we snap back. We snap back to living the way we did before. Because it's natural. It fits like a glove. And we feel we're in control. See, Christianity is about being like God. Christianity says that when we become Christians, we become like Christ. 
But it says the only way that is possible, it is only possible because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is only possible when you begin that journey at the foot of the cross, admitting that you cannot do it on your own, that every time you get close to what you know is better, you will always fail. You admit it. You give it to God. And you say, I want Jesus now to be the Lord. In other words, you're, you're going the opposite way. What did I say first? We don't like to be told what to do. Becoming a Christian says, I want to be told what to do, and I want to be told what to do by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who created me, who redeemed me, who loves me. I want that guy to tell me what to do. It goes against our nature. Because we, we don't believe, when with faith, we don't believe more in what we can see. We, we believe more in what we can't see. Not just the intangibles, but the promises that are to be fulfilled. It goes against the natural because now we become more like God by crucifying the desire to be like God. That seems like, oh, that doesn't make sense. If we want to be something, then we have to want it and go get it. That's how it works. That's how it works in the world. But when it comes to becoming more like God, you have to give up the desire to be like God. That's why the Bible says we die to self. We die to self. We are crucified with Christ. And then, and then, he starts his work. And what his work does is it makes us like God in the way that matters most. You see, Eve wanted to be like God because she wanted to be as smart as him. Maybe we want to be like God because we want to be as powerful as him. But here's what Jesus promises. I will give you God's heart. You might not know everything, but you will love everything. You will love everyone. You will love as God loves. You might not be powerful enough to do everything, but you will be powerful enough to love your enemies. You'll be that powerful. And that's way more powerful than your enemies because they don't love you. And so... The last verse says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. He ate. You see, why? Fourth reason. We reject God. We want to leave because the alternative looks and feels good. That's why. You see, if sin was always painful, 
Very few people would do it. If every time you stole, you got a huge burning sensation in your hand that was excruciating and you were immobilized, I'm pretty sure you'd stop stealing. But sin's not always like that. I always use the example of cigarettes. If, if you smoked a cigarette and immediately got cancer, you would probably stop smoking cigarettes. Unless it's a way of suicide. Or, even better, if you, smoked, if you saw somebody smoke a cigarette and their head exploded, and the advertisement said, smoke a cigarette, explode your head, how many people would smoke cigarettes? I, I would make the case only middle school boys would be buying cigarettes because they would want to see each other's heads explode. But nobody else would do it because it would be sin, immediate problems. But the worst sins are not like that. They're more like cancer. And you don't see their effects. And you might even be enjoying the process of, of feeding that cancer. We want to leave because leaving looks and feels so good. On the other hand, if we truly know who God is, following God is hard. It's hard. We don't just magically, automatically become like God. It's hard. Not just to learn and to grow, but also to be able to serve and to be used. God leads us to hard places. Think back over your life. Think back over your life and think how much of your life was comfortable and how much of your life was not comfortable. I'm not talking about the th- you know, not having all the stuff you wanted and being bugged, you didn't have a bigger house, blah, blah, blah. I'm just talking about really uncomfortable, really suffering. And if you go, well, you know what? 5% of my life is uncomfortable. I would tell you, if you're truly a Christian, you should be upset with God right now. And you should say, God, why did you make my life so comfortable? Why didn't you put me in hard places and around hard people so that I might serve you and so that I might learn and I might grow? Why didn't you do that? Am I that weak that you had to keep me in a nice little controlled, comfortable environment? I don't know. Following God's hard. And when I see something that gives me immediate you know, feedback that it's good, and I see something else that's hard, ah, why am I going to choose the hard thing? And so we're tempted to leave. Well, the sad thing is, the Bible tells us in Romans 1 that God lets us go if we must go. But what is so awesome about God, what is so incredible about Him, is that even though we go, and even though we go in a way that we can never come back, once you leave God, you can never come back. And He lets us go. But, God is so merciful. He's so full of grace that He makes a way back. He makes a way back. And the way is Jesus Christ.
Paul sums this up in this verse, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. When Paul says light momentary affliction, this is the guy that was thrown into prison. This is the guy that was shipwrecked. This is the guy that was beaten. This is the guy that was threatened in almost every city that he went to. And he goes, oh, this light momentary affliction. This is the guy that's going to get his head chopped off. And he says, this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. If you want to be countercultural, if you want us to be the church that we're called to be, we need to get our eyes less off the things that are seen and more on the things that are unseen. The things that are seen still matter. People still need help, and we need to help them. But our focus needs to be on the things that God wants us to see. What is he doing in our lives? How is he changing us even now?